Welcome to Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and today is day 62 in our exploration. Uh, we are going to finish up the last three of the six effects of baptism that the Catechism sets forth. The first effect was that baptism uh, remits sin, uh, and the second effect was that baptism uh, takes away the punishment um, due to sin. And then the third effect was that baptism uh, bestows on the soul a certain regeneration, a certain grace of regeneration. And so, therefore, we begin with the fourth effect in the, uh, that the Catechism gives um, under the subtitle, The Fourth Effect of Baptism, Infused Virtues and Incorporation with Christ. And so we read, this grace, uh, that would be the grace in the third effect, namely the grace of regeneration. Uh, this grace is accompanied by a most splendid train of all virtues, which are divinely infused into the soul along with grace. Hence, when writing to Titus, the apostle says, He saved us by the laver of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost, whom he hath poured forth upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. St. Augustine, in explanation of the words poured forth abundantly, says that is for the remission of sins and for abundance of virtues. By baptism, we are also united to Christ as members to their head, as therefore from the head proceeds the power by which the different members of the body are moved to the proper performance of their respective functions. So from the fullness of Christ the Lord are diffused divine grace and virtue through all those who are justified, qualifying them for the performance of all the duties of Christian piety. Uh, we proceed, the subheading is why the practice of virtue is difficult even after baptism. Though we are thus supported by a powerful array of virtues, it should not excite our surprise if we cannot, without much labor and difficulty, undertake or at least perform acts of piety and of moral virtue. If this is so, it is not because the goodness of God has not bestowed on us the virtues from which these good works proceed, but because there still remains after baptism a severe conflict of the flesh against the spirit, in which, however, it would not become, it would not become a Christian to be dispirited or grow faint. Relying on the divine goodness, we should confidently hope that by a constant habit of leading a holy life, the time will come when whatever things are modest, whatever just, whatever holy, will also prove easy and agreeable. Let these be the subjects of our willing consideration, the objects of our cheerful practice, that the God of peace may be with us. And uh, the Catechism was quoting uh, from uh, St. Philip, chapter 4, verse 8, and Second Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 11. Uh, we proceed to the fifth effect now, the fifth effect of baptism, the character of Christian. By baptism, moreover, we are sealed with a character that can never be effaced from the soul. On this point, however, we need not speak at length, for what we have already sufficiently said on the subject when treating of the sacraments in, ge in general may be applied here. 
since on account of the nature and efficacy of this character, it has been defined by the church that this sacrament is on no account to be reiterated, pastors should frequently and diligently admonish the faithful on this subject, lest at any time they may be led into error. This doctrine is taught by the apostle when he says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Again, when exhorting the Romans that being dead in Christ by baptism, they should take care not to lose the life which they had received from him. He says, In that Christ died unto sin, he died once. These words seem clearly to signify that as Christ cannot die again, neither can we die again by baptism. Hence the Holy Church also openly professes that she believes one baptism. That this agrees with the nature of the thing and with reason is understood from the very idea of baptism, which is a spiritual regeneration. And then by virtue of the laws of nature, we are generated and born but once. And as St. Augustine observes, there is no returning to the womb. So in like manner, there is but one spiritual regeneration and baptism is never at any time to be repeated. The next subheading is in conditional baptism, the sacrament is not repeated. Nor let anyone suppose that it is repeated by the church when she baptizes anyone whose previous baptism was doubtful, making use of this formula, if thou art baptized, I baptize thee not again, but if thou art not yet baptized, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. In such cases, baptism is not to be considered as impiously repeated, but as holily yet conditionally administered. In this connection, however, there are some matters in which, to the very great injury of the sacrament, abuses are of almost daily occurrence, and which therefore demand the diligent attention of pastors. For there are not wanting those who think that no sin is committed if they indiscriminately administer conditional baptism. Hence, if an infant be brought to them, they think that no inquiry need be made as to whether it was previously baptized, but proceed immediately to baptize the child. Nay, more, although they be well aware that the sacrament was administered at home, they do not hesitate to repeat its administration in the church, conditionally making use of the solemn ceremonies of the church. This certainly they cannot do without sacrilege and without incurring what theologians call an irregularity. Um, the footnote here in the text says this irregularity has been abolished under the Code of Canon Law. And um, um, according to the authority of Pope Alexander, the conditional form of baptism is to be used only when after due inquiry doubts are entertained as to the validity of the previous baptism. In no other case is it ever lawful to administer baptism a second time, even conditionally. And uh, finally, we have the sixth effect of baptism, opening the gates of heaven. Besides the other advantages which accrue to us from baptism, the last to which all the others seem to be referred is that it opens to us the portals of heaven which sin had closed against us. These effects which are wrought in us by virtue of baptism are distinctly marked by the circumstances which, as the gospel relates, accompany the baptism of our Savior. The heavens were opened, 
and the Holy Ghost appeared descending upon Christ our Lord in the form of a dove. By this we are given to understand that to those who are baptized are imparted the gifts of the Holy Ghost, that to them are opened the gates of heaven. The baptized, it is true, do not enter heaven immediately after baptism, but in due season, when they shall have been freed from all misery, which is incompatible with a state of bliss, they shall exchange a mortal for an, for an immortal life. These are the fruits of baptism, which, if we consider the efficacy of the sacrament, are no doubt equally common to all. But if we consider the dispositions with which it is received, it is no less certain that all do not share to the same extent in these heavenly gifts and graces. And here it might be good to remind ourselves of the um, some things that St. Thomas Aquinas said um, concerning what the um, concerning the character that baptism imprints on the soul. Um, this effect that uh, we know that baptism, confirmation, and holy orders imprint a character on the soul, and we just remind ourselves of the some of the fundamental notions of what that character is. Uh, in, this is in question 63, part 3, question 63, article 1 of the Summa, where St. Thomas asks whether a sacrament imprints a character on the soul. And I think we've already read this, but just to uh, remind ourselves of some of the things he says. He says that uh, the sacraments of the new law are, are ordained for a twofold purpose, namely for a remedy against sins and for the perfecting of the soul in things pertaining to the divine worship according to the right of the Christian life. Then he says, whenever anyone is deputed to some definite purpose, he is wont to receive some outward sign thereof. Thus, in olden times, soldiers who enlisted in the ranks used to be marked with certain characters of the body. Um, so he goes back to this idea that uh, soldiers and um, uh, people that were deputed received some kind of mark, maybe a, maybe a tattoo or perhaps a uh, badge or something. Uh, but he says, therefore, um, St. Augustine, or, or rather he says, therefore, by the sacraments men are deputed to a spiritual service pertaining to the worship of God. It follows that by their means the faithful receive a certain spiritual character. And wherefore Augustine says, if a deserter from the battle through dread of the mark of enlistment on his body throws himself on the emperor's clemency and having besought and received mercy, returned to the fight. Is that character renewed when the man has been set free and reprimanded? Is it not rather acknowledged and approved? Or are the Christian sacraments by any chance of a nature less lasting than this bodily mark? So that's an um, interesting thing that St. Augustine talks about there. I guess it's probably a little more common in his time, this, this idea that a, a deserter um, might go back to the army and... Um, the brand that he received, the character that he received on his body is recognized as still valid. And uh, I think St. Augustine is thinking especially of uh, Romans one twenty, where we see through the visible things of this world, the invisible things of God are made known. So that's a way for us to understand this, this idea of a character as being a certain mark that we receive on our soul that deputes us to a certain um, to the worship of God. And um, St. Thomas uh, goes ahead and in the next article he talks about how the character is a spiritual power. And very briefly he says, 
um, he says that the sacraments of the new law the um, produce a character insofar as by them we are deputed to the worship of God. And he goes on, he says, the worship of God consists either in receiving divine gifts or in bestowing them on others. And for both these purposes, some power is needed. For to bestow something on others, active power is necessary, and in order to receive, we need a passive power. Consequently, a character signifies a certain spiritual power ordained unto things pertaining to the divine worship. Um, later on, I think he'll, he'll talk about how the power of, uh, that we receive on our souls from baptism is the passive power, namely to receive the other sacraments, namely, uh, um, the, and that's why we call baptism the door of the sacraments. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's in the sixth article of the Summa in question 63 where St. Thomas uh, makes this distinction, and I think it would be worthwhile to read it now. He says, um, the, the question is whether a sacrament is imprinted by each sacrament of the new law. And uh, now we know that that's not the case, so he's going to say, I answer that uh, the sacraments of the new law um, are ordained for a twofold purpose, namely as a remedy for sin and for the divine worship. Now all the sacraments, from the fact that they confer grace, have this in common, that they afford a remedy against sin, whereas not all the sacraments are directly ordained to the divine worship. Thus it is clear that penance, whereby man is delivered from sin, does not afford man any advance in the divine worship, but restores him to his former state. Now a sacrament may belong to the divine worship in three ways, first in regard to the thing done, secondly in regard to the agent, thirdly in regard to the recipient. In regard to the thing done, the Eucharist belongs to the divine worship, for the divine worship consists principally therein, so far as it is the sacrifice of the church. And by this same sacrament a character is not imprinted on man, because it does not ordain man to any further sacramental action or benefit received, since, rather, it is the end and consummation of all the sacraments, as Dionysus says. But it contains within itself Christ, in whom there is not the character, but the very plenitude of the priesthood. So that's why uh, the sacraments of penance and the Eucharist do not imprint a character on the soul. He goes on, but it is the sacrament of order that pertains to the sacramental agents, for it is by this sacrament that men are deputed to confer sacraments on others, while the sacrament of baptism pertains to the recipients, since it confers on man the power to receive the other sacraments of the church, whence it is called the door of the sacraments. In a way, confirmation also is ordained for the same purpose as we shall explain in its proper place. Consequently, these three sacraments imprint a character namely baptism, confirmation, and order. With respect to the effect that the Catechism sets forth that, the, that baptism opens the gates of heaven, uh, St. Thomas says this very briefly. He says, To open the gates of the heavenly kingdom is to remove the obstacle that prevents one from entering therein. Now this obstacle is guilt and the debt of punishment. But it has been shown that all guilt and also all debt of punishment are taken away by baptism. It follows, therefore, that the effect of baptism is to open the gates of the heavenly kingdom. So uh, that, that 
effect, that last effect that it opens the gates of heaven is a um, is simply a uh, logical conclusion of the other effects. Uh, and then finally, um, this interesting question about um, whether baptism has an equal effect on all. Do all recipients receive these effects equally? Uh, this is in the eighth article where St. Thomas takes this up. He says, um, he says, I answer that the effect of baptism is twofold, the essential effect and the accidental. The essential effect of baptism is that, is that for which baptism was instituted, namely the begetting of men unto spiritual life. Therefore, since all children are equally disposed to baptism because they are baptized not in their own faith, but in that of the church, they all receive an equal effect in baptism. Whereas adults who approach baptism in their own faith are not equally disposed to baptism. For some approach thereto with greater, some with less devotion. And therefore some receive a greater, some a smaller share of the grace of newness. Just as from the same fire he receives more heat who approaches nearest to it, although the fire, as far as it is concerned, sends forth its heat equally to all. But the accidental effect of baptism is that to which baptism is not ordained, but which the divine power produces miraculously in baptism. Thus, on Romans chapter 6, verse 6, that we may serve sin no longer, a gloss says, This is not bestowed in baptism, save by an ineffable miracle of the Creator, so that the law of sin which is in our members be absolutely destroyed. And such like effects are not equally received by all the baptized, even if they approach with equal devotion, but they are bestowed according to the ordering of divine providence. So that's interesting um, that uh, the sacramental effects are not necessarily received equally, and I think that this is um, probably can be said for all the sacraments, that um, the sacrament is like a fire, that uh, he who approaches nearer to it receives more heat. And um, um, so there is, some, uh, there is some obligation on the part of the recipient, or there's, it depends on the recipient, um, how much grace or how much of the effect of each grace receives. Um, so that's a, that should be a motivating factor in the reception of a sacrament. And uh, I think we all have that instinctive knowledge, uh, especially with something like a penance or the Eucharist. We all know that to uh, receive these things with more or less devotion it would make sense that we'd, we receive the effects of these sacraments um, to a greater or less degree. Um, although in some respects, um, there's an equal um, re reception. So we will stop there and meditate on those six effects of baptism until we um, uh, go on with our next episode. Thank you very much for joining me in this episode of Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and we will see you next time.